Hello, my name is Tyler Chisholm, and welcome to a special episode of Collisions YYC Current and Critical, a 20-minute high-intensity episode where I sit down with local leaders to discuss the themes of the day. Hello, and welcome back. It's the first, I know we're going to listen to this probably later this week or next week, but it's the first Tuesday after the long weekend, and I'm here with Mr. Shane Wallace. How are you doing, Shane? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We were chatting a little bit offline. I think I've heard your name, I don't know how many times from different people. I love, I'm a big fan of small town, like Calgary, biggest small town I've ever lived in. But this yeah. is the first time you and I have spoken, spent some time in your website. Really excited to have you on because I think from a timing perspective, as we move through this current crisis that we're in, which will rename, will remain unnamed at this point, because we <laughs> yeah. think we've all heard, we've all heard it enough. Yeah. We're looking to, the, we're looking for the way forward and culture and how our companies function inside and out is, is I think now brought to the surface more than ever. And you run a company called Culture Smith. So maybe tell us a little bit about that and we'll roll in from there. Oh, that sounds great. So yeah, Culture Smith. Um, so technically we founded the company back in 2005 and it was founded originally as a company called Search Recruitment. Uh, we focused on recruitment. Uh, we were a straight up recruitment firm. And being in Calgary and the cyclical nature of Calgary, um, it was very much a binge and purge. You would have times where companies were hiring tremendously and they were paying you tremendous fees for minimal effort. And then you would have periods where mass layoffs and the value proposition of calling somebody up to, to send you a couple of resumes just wasn't there anymore. And so during the 08, 09 downturn was when we first started looking at a potential pivot where we started looking at okay, um, people are paying us to, to go find them warm bodies, essentially. And when we're sitting down with a candidate, interviewing them, uh, a job seeker interviewing them, that interview room kind of becomes a confessional booth. And they're telling us everything that's wrong with their companies and why they're potentially looking at leaving. And they all kept saying the exact same things. And so at that time, um, just through my own entrepreneurial journey, uh, we had started really incorporating elements of emotional intelligence in terms of how we were leading the business, how we were interacting with our own staff. And the first foundation of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And once you start growing a certain amount of self-awareness, um, it's really hard to, you start spotting those that lack it. And once, once you that, take the red, once you take the red pill, it's hard to go back. <laughs> exactly. And so when we would see clients that would give us searches and the blind spots through which they were looking for talent and then job seekers and the reasons that they were looking at leaving their organizations were again riddled with the same blind spots is we started kind of pushing back a bit and said well what if we just helped you step outside your blind spots maybe you wouldn't look to replace this person you're looking to replace maybe you're a contributing factor to the issue that you have with this person and if you don't work on your leadership you're just going to have a revolving door here. And even if we found you the most brilliant candidate ever. And the same thing on the candidate side is, is you're, you could just be unhappy. And yes, it's very easy to say that your job is the primary cause of your unhappiness. But if you learned how to be happy and then looked at your job through that same lens, would, would you leave? Maybe the worst thing we could be doing is helping you leave if you're not working on these. And so as with anything, like we gained a certain amount of traction because it's not like we had a, you know, a pipeline full of business. And so we were able to focus attention to it. But if you remember the 0809 downturn was really, really steep, really, really painful, but it was over in about six, eight months. It, it really wasn't. It was, it was very, long. it was very quick, specifically in Calgary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so our core business came back and we no longer had incentive to continue with the pivot. And so fast forward to 2014 when that downturn happened and that was something we hadn't seen before and so i would love to say that there was some grand design where it's like okay we, we kept this skunk works project ready to go for the next downturn i'd love to say we had that much foresight but it was actually a client of ours that we had sort of tabled this with back in 0809 that came back to us and said hey could you dust that off and rather than using the strategy that you use to help us find people could we we have to go through layoffs could we use that same thing to determine who to lay off and who to keep, not from a tenure standpoint, but from an emotional intelligence and fit with our culture standpoint? And that turned into an argument with my business partner, which turned into the name Culture Smith, which turned into the business, which 
here we are now. Um, I, 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 I appreciate the story to understand because <laughs> it's so, it's so easy to look where someone's arrived at and being like, Oh, this was always part of the journey or was some master plan yeah. or like, or I think sometimes we have that like, Oh, well you guys got it all figured out. Clearly I don't have mine, but you, you've got yours going on. But usually you peel back. It's even why I started doing the podcast. You peel back one layer. You usually find the truth and it's not as shiny as the, as the outer layer is. No, it was rampant insecurity and failure and, <laughs> I love the honesty. Compounded what, into, yeah. I'm curious, was it large? Uh, was it large, like large enterprise you were working with? And like, do you guys work all the way off the up and down the board? It sounds like that was a large organization that maybe was the spark to get that ignited for you guys. Uh, they were they were mid side. They were about a hundred employees at the time. Um, okay, so, so not, okay, okay. Um, right now, we have our niche incredibly well defined. Uh, prior to that, it was whoever would pay an invoice. Yeah, like, as entrepreneurs, I yes, I I'm addicted to yes sometimes, or I certainly have been in the past. Yeah, and so paid some pretty expensive lessons doing that, and so got really specific about our niche, mainly because the pivot. Um, so when we started pivoting and having conversations about culture and engagement and emotional intelligence, the downside to those is they're very buzzwordy. And anytime something kind of gets into the lexicon as a buzzword, it's super easy to dismiss or super easy to assume, oh yeah, no, I have emotional intelligence. I don't need to learn it. And so Calgary was a really unique market to try and launch this because we faced a lot of resistance. We faced, and, and not resistance where people didn't see the value, more resistance in the form of ignorance um, or lack of understanding where they kind of thought they had that figured out already. Mm -hmm. um, which indirectly is not understanding the value, right? You know what I mean? If you, because if you're ultimately not willing to bring it in because you think you've got it checked, yeah, then do you truly understand the depth of that value? And I think that, you know where we're going to end up to today. Like this, this crisis has forced us all to relook at everything, and culture being at such a such an interesting factor. When now you're no longer in the office, you're dispersed. You're like you maybe reduction in work. People, you people have been laid off. Salary rollbacks. Like everything is being put to the test right now. Well, and that's the unique thing about culture is it's around you all the time. And because it's around you all the time, it's very hard to look at. <laughs> it, 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 it's very hard to isolate and pinpoint and say, like, when I ask people, like, tell me what your culture is. And I hear about, oh, we well, got a foosball table in the break room. It's like, well, that's not culture. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a perk. Yeah. What's the joke? Yes. Yeah, one fish says the other fish, man, the water's cold. And the one fish goes, water? Yeah. <laughs> and I heard, so, that the other, I heard that the other day. I was working in somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's. And so it was, it was a challenge and that, and that's where, you know, we resisted the urge to dive into other markets and, and we just figured that Calgary was the absolute best stress test of the model. And so not only was like part of the issue was the, the trying to get the message across, but, but we owned a big part of that in that we, we struggled to craft a really elegant elevator pitch. Our elevator pitch was 60 minutes long. Okay. And to try and capture somebody's attention. Like it was great if I was on stage speaking and the 15% of the audience that felt like I was speaking direct to them would come pull me aside after the talk and they'd become a client. But to, you know, what do you do? We, we, for years lacked the ability to answer that question, any sort of succinct, discernible manner. And, and has the last five to six years in Calgary being the challenge economically that it has, has that almost given you provided also more like territory for you guys to grow and evolve that? Like it, it didn't bounce yeah. back, back to your, one of your previous stories. The fact that we've stayed a little bit back on our heels, you know, I've heard it said that, you know, we, 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 we're already really well prepared for this, this uh, COVID crisis because we've been back on our heels for four or five years and we're already I trying to that. work towards change. And I've had a few guests say that, which I do appreciate the, let's find the silver lining because that's what we need to do. So has you, has that been a reality for you even over the last 10 weeks with your, with your clients or people are going, yeah, wow. Okay. This is now the most important thing I need to deal with. Yeah. Like, um, obviously I think one of the first questions everybody asks in the past couple of weeks when you're, you're reconnecting with people is, Hey, how's it going? How's this impacted you? And as, as I was telling you before we, we got on camera here, I struggle to answer the question because we've benefited. Like we've, we've, I don't think we've been in this solid of a position in every metric within the business ever. Um, because talking about the stuff that we talk about, again, when it falls into that buzzword category, it's easy to dismiss and it's theoretical. 
like, so when we're talking to leaders and saying, okay, here's why you need to focus on workplace emotional intelligence. And here's the upside. Like I can pull all the Gallup numbers that are out there and say, okay, your turnover rate is going to drop by 18%. Um, and that's easy to dismiss where now so many of the seeds that we planted from a marketing standpoint, nine, 10, 18 months ago are out of the blue. And, and from what we feel, some of the most unlikely places like industries that you wouldn't think they have, like they would be conserving resources right now and would not be spending money on stuff like this, yet they're propping our services at the top of their priority list because they're starting to recognize, A, they, they want to be able to address the mental health of their employees and make sure that they are being compassionate leaders, but B, they're starting to recognize that the ability to self-regulate emotion is directly tied to decision making and right now nobody knows what's happening and so we had better be making solid decisions and so that connection has just been viscerally made for so many people in the past two or three months um that to be honest with you it yeah the, the phone's kind of been ringing off the hook well it's so i've had a couple clients you know certainly in our as a marketing company people like well what message should i get out there and what like sure. one that's going to provide the most value and be the most relevant to your company right to to your clients right now it's not what you want to sell them it's what they need so to hear that people are getting there very quickly quote unquote on their own and now your message is relevant it's because the value proposition is there so from your perspective obviously that we've been through you were AO809 downturn 1415 and kind of the restructuring of the oil and gas sector that we've had there but has this been a specific flavor this this last nine weeks that's caused leaders to go, wow, I need to look at my team. I need to look at culture. I need to look at the whole person. Has this has this been a bit of a unique formula that's forced leadership teams to go, now I have to look at this. I can't just glaze over it anymore. Yeah, because the, the tide's gone out in so many ways and has exposed so many things. Um, not only, and, and what's been refreshing to us is, is not just... Um, organization saying, oh, well, we really know who's committed to our company now. Because, you know, um, employees struggling with childcare, employees struggling with anxiety, all of these different issues that are saying, okay, well, I, I can't meet those objectives anymore. And I'm feeling uncomfortable being held to these performance standards because of everything that's going on in my personal life. That happened in the first couple of weeks. But what's really come out are the leaders saying, I've got some gaps. Like, I'm like, I don't like the version of me that's showing up right now. I don't like uh, anxiety. Even on, a, on, a, on itself, on a, oh, interesting. Yeah, not, because not they're necessarily like, I'm maybe I'm looking in the, I'm seeing a, I'm seeing a reflection more than I'm necessarily looking out at my culture or my team. Oh, interesting. Well, and it's because the, the, the employee base um, has been just as complacent as leaders in tolerating some pretty shitty behavior. And when their capacity for tolerating that behavior goes away, leaders are getting more feedback than they ever have. Leaders are being told, like, like employees now have the 10 seconds of courage that's needed to say, that's not cool. I like, here's how I feel when you do that. And when I feel that way, here's how I act. And so they're getting this feedback and it's making them uncomfortable. They don't know how to process it. A lot of it because it's kind of like in the matrix, right? Where Neil first gets unplugged and he's like, I can't move my arms. It's like, well, it's because you've never used them before. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, yep. leaders will run an engagement survey and, the engage and then they'll pick one metric in the engagement survey and say, oh, okay, well, I think if we improve our benefits package, things are going to work out here. Where, you know, the number of leaders that run an employee engagement survey, but have never had a 360 done on themselves and recognize, oh, if you actually want to create engagement, start there. That's a, that's a, that's a challenge for a lot because like it, it doesn't, it's, you, you erode company, you erode culture, you erode brand, you erode all those things, and it just gets down to the human uh, interpersonal human experience. And that's a vulnerable place for a lot of us to go to as, as leaders sometimes because, let's be honest, we've all watched too many Hollywood movies and we're supposed to be superheroes. We're supposed to yeah. know all and see all and be all. And we all know that's just not true. A hundred percent. And it's... Um, so no, like like I say, the it's more been you know an empowered employee base that I would give the assist to in communicating to leaders a little bit more forcefully that I want to be engaged. I don't know how, I don't know how to process these emotions. 
it's not that I, I view you as a burden or a strain. I'm, I'm trying to contribute. I be, being a, a productive member of this company fills me with pride. I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. saying I won't do it. I'm saying I don't know how. Which is we hear one, but sometimes we think it's the other. That's that's a really interesting phenomenon. Just to like how yeah. you bring your filters. So let's get to nuts and bolts of it. You're a leader, and maybe you're hearing this right now, and you're like, "Oh wow, okay." Like I'm resonating with this. How do you approach it? Like, what's the, where where do you start? Like, I like to be as practical as I can for people. Sure. And you know, like you said, this is a very theoretical world, but you've built a whole organization that builds it down, brings it down to a very practical. Like, let's get on a journey, and let's because it is a journey. There is no magic pill, which I'm sure sometimes when you get hired, you are the magic pill or at first yeah it, it's it's tough because we're um we we liken ourselves more to a personal trainer where we're going to design your workout we're going to design your diet plan we're going to spot you make sure you don't tear something as you're growing your strength but the second you ask us to pick up the weight for you you're not getting the benefit so there are so many instances where the company will call and say hey consultant go in and fix this and it's like no we're going to teach you how to fix it and then we're going to teach you how to stop breaking it and we're going to do those two things. And if you're interested in that, if you're interested in the growth and the development that comes along with it, great. Just know you're you're going to have to pick up the weight. And and so that's what I'd say is there's there's more willingness to pick up the weight. There's there's less willingness to outsource the problem to a consultant and say, okay, you go fix this. It's no, I need to be built up. I I need to learn how to fix this. So so to answer your question, it's um so the central tenant comes from emotional intelligence and what we call workplace emotional intelligence, which that in and of itself, um, so employee engagement started gaining a lot of traction. And employee engagement was probably one of the most misunderstood terms. Okay. When, I when I would ask leaders, okay, so how can you tell an engaged employee from a disengaged employee? And they would point to the, the outcomes low turnover, low absenteeism, higher productivity, all of those things. And it's like, yeah, no, those are the, the products of engagement. But if you actually look at Gallup's definition, so when Gallup says that 85% of the global workforce is disengaged at work, it doesn't mean that 85% of people are not productive. It means that the vast majority, so as we say, engaged employees are there for what they give, disengaged employees are there for what they get. So it just means that 85% of employees are primarily there for what they get, meaning their productivity is directly correlated to the bribes and threats. If the bribe is big enough, they'll work. If the threat is big enough, they'll work. But the problem with using bribes and threats to motivate is we build up a tolerance. So the bribes have to get bigger and so do the threats. And so the first question I'll typically ask leaders is, what yeah, do you want your that's leadership? A, that's, a, that's a vicious That's a vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so if I were to ask you, you know, Tyler, what do you want your leadership if you carve out activities for leadership 18 months from now, what do you want to be spending your time doing? Do you want to be spending your time collaborating with employees, innovating, coming up with new ideas, or do you want to be spending your time bribing and threatening? Because that's the path you're on. I can literally time block in your calendar how many hours a day based on your employees you're going to have to be spending bribing and threatening. Wow. Okay. And that's so very, that, that, that's real. That's very tangible. Yeah. And so once you get that message through, so, and you understand that, Gallup's definition is that engagement is the emotional connection an employee has to their company's goals and objectives. How much do they care? How much, if the company wins, does that fill them with pride to be part of that? So in strict psychological terms, it's known as social identity theory. And our, our identity drives our behavior. And there's essentially two buckets. There's our personal identity and our social identity. Personal identity is anything that that forms our self-image that we're proud of right any sort of skill attribute personality trait that we take great pride in and we show off where social identity is okay what are the groups that we are a part of and being a part of that group builds up our self-identity builds up our self-esteem and so we have to know we're a part of the group that group has to fill us with self-esteem and therefore we have to be willing to contribute to the group at the sake of our own personal so, so it, we're making a sacrifice, but it doesn't feel like a sacrifice because, because we're getting that we're getting filled up. Yeah. It feels good for us to be part of that group and it feels even better for our group to be thriving. Right. So fandom, 
right? If you're the fan of a team, right? There's, and this is why people react so negatively to bandwagon jumpers, right? During a playoff <laughs> run yeah. and there's a yeah. bandwagon jump. It's like, no, you didn't make the investment. You weren't with the team when we had a two win season, right? So that person, that, that diehard fan that made that emotional investment and wore that Jersey and got ridiculed for wearing the Jersey, that's an engaged employee. That's the person that has the that's the, extra that's, the we, that's the we versus them kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. And so what we're we basically the the whole thing was built under the hypothesis that if the emotional connection is what is needed to drive engagement, well, emotional intelligence is the only element of human personality that can actually be taught. It's like a muscle. You can grow your emotional intelligence. What if we focus there? What if we started growing the emotional intelligence in leaders and employees? to strengthen that emotional connection, engagement goes up, turnover goes down. And we literally, like we, we, we set the objective back in 2014, let's put ourselves out of business because the market's about to do it anyways. So, <laughs> so let's put ourselves out of business. Let's eliminate recruiting. What would we need to do to eliminate the need for recruiters? And it was grow engagement. If we grow engagement and we can actually reduce turnover, we would not be receiving calls from clients saying we've had another person quit. Here's 20% of salary, the next person to go find the replacement. And then we're going to repeat that process in 18 months. Right. Which is the vicious cycle. It is. And so once that came, um, culture smithing. So if we're going to empower people to grow their emotional intelligence, culture smithing became, okay, let's smith the culture. Let's build the type of culture that allows for that to happen. So, to answer your question in terms of, of tactics, it's first of all going in and defining what the culture is, um, which honestly, a lot of the techniques we use, I would imagine you use when you're helping to define a brand. Because our philosophy is, is really that brand in many ways is culture pointed externally. It's you know, like you're trying to invite clients in to be part of this ecosystem and, and have some stickiness and have some emotional attachment to your company. Well, we're doing, they, can, they can physically connect to, identify with, yeah. elevates that. Yes, it's exactly all those same. Um, a, a true brand is like a cult. And if it does it well, it you know you get connected to it when these, you know, it's got myth, it's got symbols, yeah. it's got all the elements. <laughs> so when you turn around and you now raise your prices by 20%, your client is willing to contribute. They're willing because they're connected to that brand. Well, it's the same thing internally when I all of a sudden need you to work overtime or in this market, I need you to take a 10% wage rollback, right? Those that are connected to the culture are willing to do it and feel good that they're being asked to make that contribution because it fills them with something. I can imagine why your phone is ringing off the hook the last nine weeks, because that exact, that is being put to the test in spades right now. <laughs> hour by hour. Hour by hour, because there's there's triggers. So we've sort of identified there, there's four um, situational triggers that cause a person to have that unconscious debate between personal identity and social identity. Am I going to contribute to the group or am I going to be more self-serving? And so one is when we receive critical feedback. Uh, one is when we are asked to provide critical feedback to another. Uh, one is a response to chaos and the other is a response to pressure. Well, all four of those triggers like literally hit the day the work from home order started coming through. And so our willingness to get uncomfortable personally in those four situations and step up and contribute to the organization. Again, if that feels like a burden, if that feels like work, you're disengaged. You're there for the bribes and threats. You're there for what you get. Right. Where if that's exhausting but energizing, if it's like that workout that leaves you spent but the endorphins are flowing, <laughs> that's like, what we're I like, trying I like to the workout analogy because you put in the work and very rare do you do a workout and wish you didn't do it afterwards. Sometimes before, maybe you could try to talk yourself out of it, but you do it. But then after, it's, there's always a payoff because you put in the work and you get the reward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we've we've built this system. Um, so if you run our website, you see um, once we define the culture, it, it turns into this thing we call the culture line. Because again, if you look at the definition of culture, it's um, a system of set uh, a set of beliefs uh, and attitudes and values that separate one group of people from another. 
And so, okay, we're going to build a line then. And so if you picture the horizontal axis in a grid as the culture line and the vertical axis as the competence line, so are you a fit for the culture and can you do the job? In the upper right-hand quadrant, you have what we call an A player, somebody that fits the culture and has the competence to do the job. So part of our service is teaching companies how to target more A players when they're recruiting. Uh, a B player with somebody that fits the culture but is off a little bit on the competence, you're going to train your Bs into becoming your future As, where the C players are the ones that most organizations struggle with because those are the ones that are highly competent but low culture. Right? Like the D players that are low culture, low competence, they tend to self-select or organizations tend to weed them out. They don't, they don't hire us to go find D players. What they hire us for is what we call the toleration strategies within the Cs because they C players are creating value. They're highly competent. It's just that value is coming with an added cost. And it's an added intangible cost that's really, really hard to calculate. I've, I've now, heard them referred to often as, as terrorists sometimes. In, uh, in I think yeah. there was the tech speaker. I know you work in the tech group. Whereas like you've got your stars, you've got your terrorists, which don't think they don't provide value, but at what cost is what they, how they, it always stuck with me as an image. Well, and, and, and we agree because, so we refer to um, the outbursts of a, of a C player as noble insubordination because the 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 value set that goes into defining the culture like values are the most permanent element of human personality right they form your sense of right and wrong they form your worldview so if you and i don't share the same values unconsciously we view each other on a spectrum from i think tyler's wrong to i think tyler's dangerous and depending where i see you on that spectrum i feel compelled to act out against you i feel i'm fighting the good fight by acting so if i'm a c player Many times I feel I'm fighting the good fight by being insubordinate. By my company is wrong, it's and actually, I need to take a stand. It's actually your it's your duty to for to for the world duty. around you. <sighs> exactly, yeah, it's duty. Because you because oftentimes when you've been in those experiences, and I think we've all had that as leaders or as leaders or as as team players, where you feel so validated by acting that way, and that's kind of you know we make the best decision available to us at the time based on what we believe. Like, and when you have those beliefs deeply rooted. Uh, it, it's interesting because each other can't see why the other would even act that way. It, it, it becomes like you're looking, you can't even understand what you're seeing. And there's, and so that becomes really, really difficult behavior for a leader to coach. You're, you're almost, it's the equivalent of asking somebody to change their religious beliefs. Like, and, and that's not going to happen. And so if you, if you take that concept and we go back to emotional intelligence for emotional intelligence, we use a different grid. So now instead of culture and competence, it's now um, somebody's emotional capacity in the moment versus their consciousness of it. Are they happy and do they know it? So if you're happy and you know it, you're up in the upper right-hand quadrant, you're in your A game, right? B game, C game, D game. So we call it the engagement enigma, where most leaders that are dealing with acute bouts of disengagement in their team, they, they can't determine whether they're dealing with a C player or whether that person is an A player who just happens to be in their C game. And if they make, and they have to make that distinction because if they keep a C player on for too long, that's the terrorist you speak of. That becomes the cultural cancer that just is, is disastrous. Where we did a multi-year study to try and determine, and we found that less than six and a quarter percent of any given market at any given time has an A player. So when you go looking, if you opened up a chair right now and you went looking for an A player, less than six and a quarter of the per percent of the market right now is an A player relative to your culture, has the skills you need and is going to fit your culture. And that's assuming you can even land them over, assuming you can compensate them wow, enough. That's, to a, that's a pretty narrow, that's a pretty small pond to fish in. <laughs> very narrow. So or, or a big pond with very few fish, maybe the other way around. <laughs> and so the two things that need to happen there is number one, you have to be very careful about misdiagnosing an A player as a C just because they're in C game and then working to get rid of them because they're going to yep. be super hard to replace. And number two, you have to always be looking for your next A player. Because the market is so thin, you can't put the variable of time on your search. You can't wait for the chair to open. So half of what we do with leaders is teach them how to, we call them cocktail questions. Here's, here's conversational questions you can ask anytime you meet somebody that will actually tell you whether or not they fit your cultural values. And we just want you to store that away in your mental database. Because maybe that day, maybe that person grows to become a client. Maybe they become a board member. Maybe they become an employee. Maybe they become a vendor, a joint venture partner. You just know they fit your culture. You know that they are aligned with what you believe. You're going to leverage that at some point. 
I really appreciate the the advice around the always on and always be thinking about that and not waiting for I have a spot so now I'll think about it because then it's it's quote unquote too late. It is. And so back to what we were talking about at the beginning, this is where sort of the upside and it's it's funny because we used our our number one phrase um for years leading up to this was never waste a good crisis. Yes, one of, it's one of my favorites as well. I've learned that I learned that around the tech table actually. Right. And so <laughs> the first place I heard that one the difference between this crisis and any crisis that we've seen anyways is is there's never been this many people in it together right every other crisis has been in this city anyways um more acute to certain people than others where everybody is impacted by this and so because of that what we've seen is the defenses have come down the vulnerability has gone up because it's it's no longer as embarrassing to admit as a leader that I'm struggling with this crisis when I see my peers struggling just as much and admitting that. And so we can get past the BS and get to solutioning a lot faster. Well, so many times when there's a problem with your organization, there, there's blame and it's somebody's fault, or there's greed, or there's mismanagement, or there's a story to go around it. Yeah. Where now we we have a universal story and it's outside of us. And we're all and we are all sharing, like, oh damn, that COVID. Like the universal enemy is very unifying. It's very uniting. It is. It's been galvanizing. And so all we're looking to do is empower people with the tools to be able to do it. And so because there's two parts to it, is is yeah, we want to make sure that we are looking at the opportunities and and doing whatever pivots in the business necessary to come out of this stronger than we went in. But you still have to endure that journey. You still have to deal with the daily anxiety. You still have to deal with the stress. You still have to deal with the uncertainty. And that's where emotional intelligence comes in, is the ability to self-regulate, the ability to understand that 99.9% of the time, Anxiety is attached to credibility, meaning the reason I'm anxious is I'm worried how I'm going to look as a result of this. Oh, that's such a powerful statement to take that on and just admit it to be true. Right. And once, so once like emotional intelligence ultimately comes down to self-awareness and self-regulation. So once you become self-aware that your subconscious is just wrestling with your own credibility and you can separate, right? Like, um, there's so all emotional triggers are driven by fear and the problem is is fear fear isn't real fear is a mental construct now danger danger is real right fear is a mechanism that is designed to create as much separation as possible from you and danger but it's the most think of it as the most um finely tuned yet aggressive early warning system on the planet, meaning it's going to make you worry about the danger way sooner than you need to, to prevent harm. And so we're worried about what will people think? What will people think if we go through layoffs, right? Like there were three separate clients last week that I was coaching through layoffs and trying to get to the point so and and understand i I don't want to sound glib or 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 lacking empathy here but these were these were employees that were were these cultural cancers prior to the crisis they were causing issues prior to the crisis and the fear in the leader's eyes was how is it going to look if we lay these people off we don't want our clients to assume our business is struggling So they will keep these people that are eroding value on a daily basis out of some phantom fear that a purchaser one day is going to say, oh, you let two people go during during the crisis. Um, I'm sorry, we're going to have to look for different vendors. Like it's, it's nonsense. It's, it's, it's so powerful. And I, I wouldn't want to guess how many of us, and I will include myself in it, have gone through a similar self-talk, a self-dialogue around this exact situation that you just shared. Yeah. And so it gets packaged up as empathy. Right. I, I don't want to lay somebody off in the middle of a pandemic. But when we peel that for layers and it's like, sorry, like, empathy is not factoring into this equation to the degree to which you think it is. <laughs> right. Because this is anxiety. That's, this, that's this, a convenient, convenient story about empathy, though. <laughs> it is. And, and, and again, I, I don't want to be sending the message that I think leaders that have gone through layoffs are lacking empathy. I, I know countless leaders that are racked with guilt over this. Your, your point is about emotional intelligence and awareness of the different feelings and the role they play. Exactly. Because once you're aware, you can regulate. You can start looking at 
okay, what, what are other sources of credibility? How can I redefine credibility? And if I can get this new definition of credibility, solved, my anxiety goes away. My anxiety goes away, right? Inspiration is the antidote to fear. And so if we can, but you can actually manufacture inspiration. You don't have to sit there and wait for some divine lightning bolt to hit you in the head and say, here's the way forward. The ability for us to retell our own stories, like no one can sell me on something better than me. I can be, I can sell myself the, the fear story, but I can also sell myself the different version. And it usually comes from external viewpoints and perspectives, why peer groups are so valuable for me. Uh, I won't speak blatantly, but it's like, oh, wow, that's how you accomplished that. Or that's how you got that across. Oh, maybe I could take a piece of that. So I know certainly looking sometimes outside of myself has been a real help for me as a leader, understanding how other leaders process it. And I don't think bad of them. So why am I thinking bad of me if I'm doing anyways, you know what I mean? That whole cycle you go through. Yeah, for sure. Confirmation bias is powerful. Yeah, on both on on both sides. Have you noticed is there I'd like to think this to be true and and I'm gonna ask. Emotional intelligence, the fluffy side, the, you know, oh, the voodoo, the hocus pocus. Are, is there more of an openness to that? I'm seeing it more, but also maybe it's just where I'm looking. <laughs> is, you know, Calgary is a city of run by, you know, engineers and accountants. Sometimes the group that doesn't necessarily want to put value on that softer side of things, I've seen it over the last 10 years. I feel it's moving in a more beneficial, more open direction. But again, that's maybe just where the pockets I'm looking at. <laughs> Any perspective on that? Is there a trend? Are we becoming more, are we admitting that that's a thing now? Um, so I have two answers to that. So um, in, in a broader sense, I would agree just based on, and again, my own bias, um, the blogs that I read, there's just, there's more, like even if you if you do a, a Google Trends search on emotional intelligence, the line's pointing up. So, so people are seeking it out more. Specifically to Calgary though, I will say that and again, this, this, my bias is, is full here. We, with that first sort of 12 to 18 months of trying to sell the floppy stuff and, and meeting constant rejection mm -hmm. because the market just wasn't ready for it yet. We took the approach of making soft skills hard. So let's create a system. Let's create, let's, if, if my target market is an engineer turned leader, turned CEO. Why don't I engineer, I teach an engineer how to engineer emotional intelligence, put it in a construct they can understand. Build some structure, build some data around it, and make it, that allow it to the, translate into their world. Yeah, and, th and that was the biggest sort of um, inflection point for us, was when we were able to do that. So we use a, a, a four-color system, um, and... Red and blue, red is results-oriented people, blue is process-oriented people. Um, yellows, of which I am, are experience-driven, greens are, are relationship-driven. So essentially, emotional intelligence lives in yellow and green. It's all about experiences and relationships. We just turned it into a process that drives results. So we're no longer, we're, I'm not, I'm not going to be the person that beats up a red-blue leader, of which there are many in this city, that the reason they are talking about emotional intelligence is to drive productivity. Even though 40% of the general population statistically is green and feels that that's disingenuous, that you should embrace emotional intelligence because you want to, because empathy is good and people deserve respect. Because you're quote unquote human. Exactly. The, yeah, yeah. The fact that the only reason you're doing this is to get more productivity out of me feels dirty. And so yeah. part of the system is helping that red blue leader understand that their green employee that feels that way isn't wrong. And that what they need is to just incorporate a little bit of green there, like get into why it does matter to them and, and be a little bit vulnerable about how it feels to them when results aren't hit or processes break down, how that creates the fear, how that creates the anxiety, how that creates you have to run it through, right? To get to the, yeah. yeah, to admit that, well, yeah, I do feel a certain way. Oh, okay. Well, let's maybe focus on that for a few minutes of like the, how you do feel. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the fear, the fear of the imposter syndrome, the, you know, the credibility piece. I think that's very real. You know, I was in a room full of senior leaders. I was very young at the time. Um, and the, the speaker asked, you know, how many people in the room feel that they might get found out for not being as smart as everyone thinks they are? Three quarters of the room put up their hand. Yeah. It like changed my perception of the world in that one moment. 
because you know these are the people that are supposed to have the answers and they were willing to admit it it was a powerful moment and i think that no matter how blue or sorry how green or red you are uh, or blue and blue and red you are there's still a balance if you run it out far enough that, that there's those human characteristics are still there <laughs> they are i mean yes we have dominant traits but we are all human and and you have elements of all of them you're just going to have some that are sitting in first position and some that are sitting in fifth position I prefer my right hand, but my left hand is still functional. I can still use it in a pinch. <laughs> exactly. And so it's it's trying oh, so to, to do that. And so specifically as it relates to entrepreneurship is, you know, entrepreneurs are just a fascinating subsection of this whole thing. And Calgary, I mean, for decades has been a really maverick city, right? It, it's been like, I remember when I first got into recruiting in the late nineties and I had a great couple of years because I happened to latch on to the right leadership team that would go drill a couple of wells, get up to 3,000 BOEs, flip the company and go do it again. And every time they did, they needed to rehire a whole team. And that was Calgary. That was like, we were a maverick entrepreneurial city. Get out of my way. I don't need your help. I'm going to do it my own way. Yeah. March, march the beat of yeah, I love the word maverick. I've had a few guests mention that in the last little bit. It's a good, it's an interesting word. It's different than entrepreneurship or pioneering or the maverick concept is quite interesting. And I, my personal belief is that's where the the tension comes when we're talking about Calgary needing to pivot, Calgary needing to, to, to pivot away from energy or pivot to something new is, is there just seems to be a, um, a lack of recognition of the spirit with which the energy industry was first created. And I think if the spirit stays intact, it transcends industry. It doesn't matter whether we become known for energy or tech or insurance or whatever. And so like, let's, and that's what we're just like, we want our biggest export. We say it internally all the time. We want, we want to, um, so our BHAG is to, to make Calgary's biggest export emotional intelligence. We're going to be the center for emotional intelligence. We're going to show how leading through emotional intelligence turned a city around when every single element was conspiring against it. Emotional intelligence is what led to the pivot, right? That's, 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 that's powerful. I love it. That's awesome. Right? <laughs> and, and you've been on this journey 0809 kind of repivoted back into it around around 2014. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the last 10 weeks have been a significant leap forward in terms of m moving towards your objective because everyone's got their their eyes up a little bit. I, I read a friend of mine wrote an article the other day kind of who stole my treadmill to the sense of now that this has been this treadmill that we've been on as companies as leaders as humans has been ripped away from us what are we going to take this time to learn, to appreciate, to see differently before we maybe step back on it again? And that gets me very excited about don't waste a good crisis. Well, yeah. So we were talking before. Um, so the mesh conference that you were uh, affiliated yes. with, we were looking at doing some stuff. Yep, we're, well. we're, we're both and still looking forward to being we, involved in hopefully in September, October. hundred uh, percent. And so what we were going to speak at, speak about at the time suddenly has way more relevance um, when September comes around, because we were talking about, um, so for those that don't know all about digital transformation and McKinsey did this multi-year study that showed there were four crises that, that prevented organizations from successfully executing a digital transformation project. And, and they all start with the letter C. So it made it easy to remember. Um, one was crisis. The first was crisis of commitment where they had a great brainstorming session, everything sounded good, but then actually sticking through all of the uncertainty and the anxiety to actually pivot, they would abandon halfway through. The second was crisis of conflict. So once the new line of business started getting resources directed towards it in the form of money and time and, and, and people, the conventional business started getting their nose out of joint and started saying, oh, you don't care about us anymore. You got to start funneling that back. And then the third where we get involved was crisis culture. Is, was was the culture unified enough? Did you have enough A and B players that were all rowing in the same direction in order to reduce conflict and reduce the drain on commitment? And so they went through and and there were so many of these sample organizations that they looked at that said, well, we're not experiencing any of those, yet we're still struggling with this. So why? And that's where they found the hidden fourth crisis, which was the crisis of complacency, which was there was not enough of a sense of urgency to even take the first step. 
Well, there is no more complacency. The crisis of complacency has been removed. And so all we have left is to solve those other three crises. Fix your culture, fix the culture. I love it. All, right? all that we all have we left is those other three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right. <laughs> but complacency, I had a this weird anxiety the other day when Jason Candy, they came out with their three-stage plan and this is how we're going to go back. I all of a sudden went, oh shit, I haven't done enough. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not ready for this to be over yet. It was a <laughs> yeah. weird kind of reverse yeah. and it sounds weird saying I went it out the loud. exact same thing. Yeah. I was like, oh shit, like I got to get going. Like this could get back to normal and I'm not ready to, to, to like, I got things I want to do and stuff I want to change because the complacency, I got take my complacency bias got taken out at the knees. I wouldn't have said I was complacent before until I wasn't allowed to be. And then I realized I was a little bit for sure. <laughs> I have to admit it. Well, we, we focus uh, with le- some of the leadership coaching we do. We focus on the science of habit forming and how you can't actually form a good habit without removing the bad habit. Like the, if, if you, mm-hmm. it, the placeholder falls in. So it's, it's exactly what you're talking about is you can have, if you don't make the new normal habit, if you haven't removed the placeholder of the poor habit that you had before, when the external extrinsic motivation to change goes away, you don't have the intrinsic motivation to follow through. And so that yes. panic you're feeling is a very, very real thing. It's it's your subconscious saying, you're not done your transformation yet. And so, yeah, trying to find that balancing act is critical. It was great. It, it kind of re- it, it relit the fuse all over again. It was, you know, when I thought it was still burning strong, but <laughs> the, the well, sense good. of intrinsic versus extrinsic. Hence, hence why fad diets, hence why fad workout routines, all those things don't work because they're, they're not, you didn't change the internal belief structure around what even got you to do one or the other. Yeah. It's all about identity. It's, 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 it's so powerful and so real. And from, I think back to the first episode we did of collisions was with Jim Gibson from Rainforest. And he said, Tyler, you can talk about all this economic transformation, this citywide and government this and private enterprise, but it comes down to a bunch of individuals willing to change their mindset. Yeah. And it's just stuck with me because it kind of was, it set the right tone because no matter what, we're still a bunch of individuals coming together. And if we don't change our beliefs, you know, you get, you get the same outcome over and over again and wonder why, and, and then get frustrated about it. <laughs> I agree. Shane, any, any closing? I think you and I could go all day. I'm just, I got more and more questions. So I think I'll be tracking you down after this. This is uh, such an interesting topic to me and becoming aware at different levels of awareness as you go through this as a leader and just kind of figure one layer out. It just kind of sets you up to figure out the next layer. And you know, right now there's no better time. So any, any overarching words of advice for a leader who's maybe struggling with this? Because this is, this, is, this is tough stuff. Like it's, it's the real work and it's valuable because it is, can be hard. And I know that's my, that's my label, but I always want to be respectful of like the reason you're, you're finding angst in this because it is hard to, to lean in. Any kind of overarching thoughts? And I'm sure you have this conver- version of this yeah. conversation often. So yeah, what I'd leave you with is, is it somewhat connects to our purpose and our why. Um, so if the productivity benefits and the financial benefits and just the general feeling of peace aren't enough for leaders to, as we say, take the 10 seconds of courage it takes to get started with this, um, I encourage them to, to, to tear a page from the NFL and I've, I've, closed a couple of talks I've given with this anecdote before, but if you look, I'm a massive NFL fan. Um, And if you look at the NFL, I think the NFL has got things right in the sense that, so um, until the season expands here in in next season, 16 game season, right? Every NFL player plays 16 games minus playoffs. Yet there's six to seven practices for every game. Plus off season conditioning, OTAs, minicamp, right? All of that. Meaning NFL players are paid to practice more than they're paid to play. Okay. So how many of us are paid to practice more than we're paid to play? Now, the reason the NFL is willing to pay their players, the reason they practice so much is every game is the physical equivalent of being in a car accident. They cannot play more than one game per week. They just can't recover. Well, business is a full contact sport too. And if you can recognize, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask this question when I'm, when I'm speaking on stage and similar to your story about all the leaders' hands going up, I'll say, who here is paid to practice more than they're paid to play? And literally zero hands go up. And I challenge people when we talk about a mindset shift saying, you are all paid to practice more than you are paid to play if you have proper perspective on when game time actually begins and ends. And game time is not when you're in the office. 
Game time is when you walk through the door at night. Game time begins when the stressed out, triggered version of you that has been dealing with absolute bullshit all day at work takes it out on your kids, takes it out on your spouse, and justifies it because they don't know how hard your day was. So if you could treat the workplace as the full full padded, full contact practice that it's meant to be, because theoretically you're surrounded by a lot of really smart people. So if you could practice emotional intelligence around a really smart group of people solving really cool problems, the best version of you could be the one walking through the door at night. You could be peaking at six o'clock. You could actually have a conversation at the dinner table instead of reverting to your phone at the end of the day and dreading tomorrow. And so that's my, is, is I have not met a stressed out leader of an organization with kids who gives themselves even a passing grade as a parent, right? That the guilt of not being there, of missing dance recitals of, right? So do it for that. Like emotional intelligence transcends, like we call it workplace emotional intelligence because we're going to use workplace triggers to teach you what's going on in your subconscious. But remove workplace, it's emotional intelligence, right? And your kids aren't learning in school for some unknown reason. I don't know why it's not taught. But you have the opportunity to teach it to them through your behavior, through your leadership. Leading by example. The bonus, bonus is you may have a successful company as well. That's a nice, that's a nice pivot. Cause you're not, you can't get any nose to that one. No, <laughs> no. So that's hey, what that is, saying. that's a, that's, that's a great story. I, oh, I feel kind of emotional now. And I want to go <laughs> talk to my wife. After. <laughs> no, Shane, that was great. Shane, what's the best way for someone to someone's a, so what's the best way to get a hold of you? Obviously your website, culture Smith. Is there a good way if someone wants to reach out to you directly? Yeah. So my email is uh, Shane at culturesmith.ca. It's all one word um, as it sounds. Um, or, or um, honestly, by, by phone, uh, 403-809-1321, you text me. Um, the other thing would be LinkedIn. I mean, we post probably too much content on, on LinkedIn about this stuff. You guys, so. you, guys have to, you guys have put some great content on LinkedIn, so keep it up. I wouldn't say, I would not say too much. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, but yeah, if anybody, anybody's willing to have a conversation about it, we're willing to give them the tools to have the conversation. Thanks, Tyler.